Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host, and welcome back. Um, this is a new season. It's 2019 now, when this goes out. Anyway, we're recording this on the 27th of December 2018, but this is going to be the first episode of uh, 2019. So welcome, I hope you had good holidays. Um, and I'm really excited to welcome a special guest for our first episode of the year. Um, Guy's been on a couple of times before. Um, he's a podcaster and an author and a speaker, and he's become a friend of mine. Um, Mike McCarg, welcome back. James, so good to be here. It's good to talk to you again. Yes, it is. Um, the last time we talked was at a party in London, um, an after party. What a party that was. <laughs> it, <laughs> it really was. It was such good fun. Yes, the letter just came to London in October. And we had a great day, a great couple of days, and then an after party, and spent uh, a lot of money on drinks and stayed up very late. Um, and um, yeah, it was great fun. So um, yeah, it's good to catch up again. Um, I've never got- drank that much and felt as good as I did the next day. I'm not sure how that was possible, but uh. <laughs> yeah, it was really good, wasn't it? It was um, like all the barriers are broken down. It was kind of there was no shame. Everyone was talking to each other. Um, and I think um, we all made some good friends. Um, and I, again, I've seen some of those guys since then and uh, hung out. So that was a good weekend, definitely. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. Um, and that's what Mike does. Mike is a co-host of the Liturgist podcast. He hosts the Our Science Mike podcast and he's written a book um, called Finding God in the Waves. And he's just finished writing your second book. Am I right? I'm in the final stages on You Wondrous You. You um, Wondrous You. Really excited about that book. I think people are going to like it. Um, the subtitle is Why You're a Miracle and a Pain in Your Ass. Oh, um, I'm interested. So really in digging into kind of where we come from, meaning our experiences and why we so often feel like our feelings and our actions uh, run counter to our desires. Uh, How can that be? How can we be in conflict with ourselves? That's what I explore through cognitive psychology and behavioral economics and interpersonal neurobiology. Um, And, you know, some some new ideas coming out of the of uh, psychological research uh, to to help people understand themselves. So really, really excited about this book. Yeah, I'm very excited, too. When's it when's it coming out? It'll come out um, in the you know first part of 2020. It'll be January or February 2020. <laughs> so, so about a year after this podcast comes out. Oh man! Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's so this is definitely the really advanced uh, audience here getting to hear. Yeah. Well, we'll have you on when that comes out. Probably before that as well. Let's be honest. Um, sounds like a very interesting book, um, and I wouldn't expect anything less. Um, Awesome. Yeah, and you've been doing lots of tours with the liturgists and lots of events and some great podcasts as well. Um, do catch the liturgist podcast. It's one of the best podcasts out there. Um, yeah, uh, Mike's on it. We just wrapped season four and we're starting up season five. So awesome. really exciting stuff happening over there. Cool. So we've got a lot. We're going to cover a few few things today, I think. Uh, um, later on, we're going to get some questions from some of my liturgist friends on the Facebook group um, who uh, had, I 
quite, I had so many questions, I had to actually leave some out. So um, that's going to be exciting later on. Um, um, but first, I wanted to talk about um, mental illness, mental health, um, and specifically autism spectrum disorder. Um, now, uh, because this is an issue that, this is something that I've had to deal with in the last year, a potential diagnosis with this. Um, and I know that you've been very public about um, your diagnosis with autism in the last last year. So I just I thought it might be a good way in to talk about this subject because it's something I think that's really really important that we talk about publicly because there's a lot of shame around this subject. Um, I know that when you went public about it, it really um, I felt a lot of sort of solidarity. Um, I felt I wasn't alone. I felt it was okay to talk about it. It was really helpful for me when you went public about it. Um, so, I mean, how did you come to that decision to share that? Gosh, how did I decide to share that? Um, oh, I wasn't going to talk about it so quickly. Someone asked a question oh, wow. on Ask Science Mike about autism. And then the way Ask Science Mike works is the people who are part of my Patreon community, they, they pick the questions that go on the show. And my commitment is no matter what question that they pick or questions they pick, I will dignify those questions with the best answer that I'm capable of. And they asked a question and, and picked a question about autism spectrum disorder which I had been diagnosed with that week. <laughs> so I was like, there's no way I can answer this question without talking about my diagnosis. And I didn't feel like I'd done enough processing to really talk about it publicly well, but I've decided to do the best I could uh, because I thought I, w I was torn. On the one hand, I kind of like, I don't want to reinforce unhelpful media tropes about autism. And so since I'm kind of this absent-minded professor personality, I'm a man, um, I, I kind of work in a, a thinking field, and um, I didn't want to reinforce unhelpful tropes, but I didn't think there was any way that I would was on the autism spectrum, much less into the uh, disorder part of that spectrum. Autism spectrum disorder is a specific point on the autism spectrum at mm. which there are diagnostic criteria of, of naming this as a disorder. And um, I also knew that a lot of people with autism had assumed that I have autism and asked me questions at live events or written me letters. And I told them that uh, I appreciated their candor but didn't know what a life experience was like for someone with autism because I did not have autism. I was not autistic. Mm. And um, I realized that if I just kind of weighed in and said, oh, yeah, actually, I, I am autistic, that other people might feel, and especially if I didn't make a huge deal of it, that other people would feel, you know, kind of affirmed and validated. Um, and that's exactly what happened. Uh my mailbox, I have a physical mailbox that people send cards and letters to. The address is at the bottom of my website. I don't ever call that out. Actually, this is the first time I have. <laughs> but people find it and they send me stuff. 
But ever since I've talked about the diagnosis, the majority of the cards and letters I get in that mailbox are from people with autism or family members of people with autism thanking me for kind of talking about that publicly and starting to engage in some advocacy work. Um, so yeah, I, I wish I had like a better, we'd even <laughs> talked about maybe doing a liturgist podcast episode on it and we still might. Um, but you know, hmm. I have these kind of guiding values that, that make my work. And one of those is really, honoring questions. That means if a question comes in that I don't particularly want to answer right now, I do it anyway, because that's the work. And that week, it was autism. That's amazing. That's very courageous, too. Um, Really, yeah, because it would be easy to walk away in that situation and just say that that's a difficult question for me to answer, you know. But um, it's really great to have someone with the audience that you have speaking out about something like this and being honest about it and vulnerable about it because when people do that it people suddenly feel one of the big things about um, autism spectrum disorder any and and mental illness as well um when people speak out there's solidarity there's and you suddenly feel like you're not alone and that um which makes it slightly easier to get through the day when things are difficult so um and what is it and what is what is what does is, what is ASD, ASD look like in your everyday life? How does it kind of manifest itself? Well, at first, um, it looked like a name for... You know, I've spent the last few years of my life kind of tearing down any sense of shame and just, and, mm. and just being who I am. But there were a few things um, that I knew were weird enough I still didn't tell people and I was still ashamed of. So if I had a meeting on the calendar Hmm. and I went to the meeting and there was nobody there, I would get very upset. And I don't just mean frustrated. I mean out of control or if I, you know, unforeseen circumstances on the way that event were making me late, um, Hmm. out of control. If, uh, if my morning routine or any of the routines I use to kind of guide my life, uh, get messed up, I have serious problems, difficulty functioning. So the number of times I turn in a circle in the shower in the morning are very important. And the specific order of brushing my hair, brushing my teeth, and the other things I do when I take my allergy medicine, it all happens in the exact same uh, routine every day of my life. And if that doesn't happen, it's not just upsetting. I really can't make it through the day successfully. Um. You know, and I when I when I'm alone in my office, I tend to sit in my office chair and spin in circles, um, and make little noises in my throat. And uh, I just thought that was how I thought, right? But mm-hmm. I never did that when other people are around. Um, and I get I get overwhelmed with sensory information pretty easily, actually, for a public figure. <laughs> um, yeah. And so crowds of people or lots of noises or bright lights, all those things uh, Hmm. fatigue me in a way that I think uh, maybe neurotypical people uh, wouldn't understand. And the the trouble for me is I've always been so good at masking my autism symptoms um, that it took the natural cognitive decline of aging plus kind of enhanced – 
cognitive fatigue from a brain injury to make it where I couldn't mask my symptoms as well anymore, which means the ways that I used to cope stopped working, which is how um, I became aware and especially friends and family became aware that there was something wrong. And that's what led to me going through the, the very time-consuming and, and also expensive process of being formally diagnosed yeah. uh, with ASD. Yeah. Um, it's weird because some of, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me. Um, the, having the routine, getting frustrated if that routine is disrupted, um, and kind of messing up my day completely. Um, uh, needing to know where 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 I need to be and when I need to be there, and having it planned ahead in my head, having it organised in my head, and then if it gets suddenly disrupted at the last minute, I just I get really frustrated and you know angry and and you know have to go somewhere and get that out you know and I've I've often I've been like my sister's worked worked with people with autism and with mental illness and she has said to me for many years that I've probably got some kind of autism spectrum disorder I've never been able to get a diagnosis because a doctor won't give it to me um he won't do it won't let me have a test but um I have all the symptoms so I suspect there is a high likelihood that I do um and you know what some of what you said completely resonated with my experience so um, well, it's yeah. you know, it's and the DSM five. It's really complicated to get mm. a diagnosis because it requires an interdisciplinary panel. Mm. So you have to have a clinical psychologist, and you have to have a, a neurologist kind of contribute. Um, and and there's there's really it's tough in adults because autism is designed, or 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 or, or the diagnostic criteria is about developmental deficits in childhood. So they merged Asperger's and autism spectrum disorder in the DSM-5 and they set these you know uh, criteria. They're, uh, one of the criteria is these persistent kind of problems with social communication and social interaction. Uh, so things like uh, deficits in emotional reciprocity or a back and forth conversation or trouble with sharing interests and emotions, things like that. Difficult understanding nonverbal behavior, difficulties uh, maintaining relationships. Those are kind of some of the social problems. Um, and that they're, they're more obvious typically in children. Hmm. Uh, and then you have another set of criteria, which are res- re- um, repetitive patterns and behavior activities and interests. Um, and you've got to be able to see you know, for example, you know, repetitive motor movements or objects of speech, lining up toys, um, idiosyncratic phrases, quoting media programs, things like that. Um, mm. Very restricted, fixated interests that are very abnormal in intensity. So, which I definitely have. I have a deck mm. of cards in my hands right now because uh, I try to I try to shuffle at least 300 times a day. Um, wow. Insistence on an inflexible routine and sameness and ritualized patterns are very, very important. So that's kind of a nut, the, 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 the repetitive category. Um, and then those symptoms have to be present in an early developmental period in childhood, which means to get an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, 
you've got to. Um, sorry, my phone is ringing. Uh, you've got to. Um, you've got to have records from early childhood education and interviews with parents and caregivers. And then not only do these things have to be present in early childhood, they have to cause clinically significant impairment in occupational, social, or other areas of life. Uh, and they have to be um, – there can't be another disorder or intellectual disability uh, that better describes this than autism. Mm-hmm. So that's like a really um, – that's a really specific diagnostic criteria. So I, I, mm. I'm, it's odd to hear me say the doctor won't you take any screening test, but um, yeah, you do have to. It, a doctor can't diagnose you with autism. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, and that's then right. and then yeah. it's instead of having the Aspergers and ASD divide anymore uh, in DSM five, they have put um, three levels of severity. Um, level one just means you require support. Uh, level two is you require um, substantial support, and level three is requiring very substantial support. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my diagnosis, you know, says I'm kind of level one, bordering on level two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so what's odd about autism is. Based on my job, I don't actually look like I need very much support mm-hmm. because my areas of fixation are reading and synthesizing information and then explaining it. So on a podcast, I make a pretty entertaining host or guest. The problem is I talk exactly like this at dinner, too. <laughs> so if everybody is talking about, you know, the the. I, whatever it is people talk about, I don't even know. I just kind of sit there silently, and someone says, "Well, what do you think, Mike?" And I say, "Well, actually, <laughs> it's funny uh, because, if you again, look back in 1912, and then I go on this very long speech." Yeah, it's fun. That, again, there's, a, there's some similarities there with me. Like I, I, I much find, I find it a lot easier in conversations to just talk about things that I know about and that I understand, and that. Um, that I'm passionate about and that I have knowledge of, and um, I can be silent. I can be silent at a dinner table until we get into a discussion about something. Um, and I had to teach myself, like chit chat, general social chit chat conversation. You know that you have at parties or dinners or whatever. I had to physically observe people doing it and learn how to do it. Um, as a teenager, um, you know, I didn't just pick it up naturally like everyone else seemed to. Um, so I, I resonate with that again, you know. And I think I, I think what the doctor said to me when about my, and I asked him if I could have a, a test at least to see. He said a diagnosis wouldn't do anything; it wouldn't make any difference, um, which kind of frustrated me. <laughs> um, but um, it's also yeah. true. Yeah, probably, 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 probably right. Um, if you're level one autistic, um, a diagnosis that doesn't get you access to any kind of assistive yeah. program. Oops. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would be looking really for just some clarity on on it. That's all. 
not really getting support. But yeah, I understand what you in mean. In the autism community, self-diagnosis is really supported and understood among adults, especially. Wow, this is really helpful for me. So uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure that other people listening will probably be finding this helpful as well, actually, because I think this is a yeah, this is something that people really need to hear about. So, um, well, it's, it's so hard to get an adult diagnosis, right? But yeah. if you kind of look at the DSM five, and you can take kind of um, there are some online tests you can take for screening that'll kind of their job is to tell you whether it's even worth your time to go talk to a, a, a specialist. But if you score really high on those things, and and if you become aware that there's there's other conditions that are often cross-diagnosed or misdiagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, like sensory processing disorder, which may or may not be present in someone with autism like it is with me, uh, or uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, or social anxiety disorder, there's other disorders that can produce autism-like uh, behaviors and autism-like afflictions that aren't autism. So you do definitely want to be aware of those, and it might be appropriate to see, you know, if you suspect you have autism, to talk to a, a psychologist and see, if, you know, if you have OCD instead, the reason it matters is uh, there are different treatment options. Mm, yeah. Um, and then if you kind of clear out those other frequently cross-diagnosed disorders, um and then you can just self-diagnose with a strong suspicion that you're somewhere on the mm. spectrum. Um, That's good. That's actually quite helpful. Um, I had a question from somebody, actually, uh, one of the liturgist community, about this issue. And he's, they asked, um, how, do you give ex how do you experience or give meaning or make sense of the intersection in your life between being autistic and a trauma survivor, since autistic brains are different um, than neurotypical brains and assumably process trauma in different ways. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I don't know if I can answer that question, not out of unwillingness, but just to be like transparent. Mm. I'm going through trauma therapy right now. Wow. And the question is very astute in saying, seem to. We don't actually know that much about how autistic brains process trauma compared to neurotypical brains right now. Yeah. We suspect there are some differences, but we don't know what those differences are specifically and if they're persistent across the entire community of people with autism spectrum disorder. So, um, I'm going through trauma therapy right now, and my therapist knows that I have an autism diagnosis mm -hmm. and was very careful to spell out that how autism intersects with trauma was outside of his area of expertise. But the, the clinical psychologist, was a psychologist or a psychiatrist? I don't remember. One of the two, clinical something, uh, said that trauma was outside of her training. Wow. So when you talk to like really dialed in professionals who have some area of research expertise, um, they'll tell you where the limits of their knowledge are. So I've got someone who diagnosed and treats me for ASD who doesn't know about trauma 
and I'm working with a renowned trauma therapist who doesn't know about autism spectrum disorder um, and who thinks um, my trauma therapist thinks that more of the things that impact my quality of life every day are related to PTSD or possibly even CPTSD than they are to autism spectrum disorder. Um, but as I'm kind of going through trauma therapy, the intensity of some of my reactions are um, if not unheard of, they aren't, are certainly less common than what my trauma therapist sees most of the time. Um, so I don't, I don't have like a good question. I don't have a good answer to lay that out theoretically or academically. I can tell you in my life right now, uh, as a person who is going through trauma therapy, it's just been a weird year for me. Like the same year I've diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, started seeing an occupational therapist to deal with some of that and the complications that arise, um, started having pretty severe anxiety attacks and panic attacks, which I've never had before. Mm. Uh, but some of this trauma stuff started to kind of get to the surface. Mm. So then I started seeing a trauma therapist. And then the same year I was diagnosed with autism, I've recently been diagnosed with PTSD. Um, and I'm tired of diagnoses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. And I, and I don't like what this brings into my life. I haven't talked about the PTSD on the on the podcast yet. Um, but because I get I, I, I get tired, you know, the whole world having to keep up with my mental health journey. And I know it's not the whole world. It's a very small fraction of the world. But I guess my whole world, my little media universe. Um, yeah. It feels very self-indulgent to keep talking about these things, and yet then I know once I talk about PTSD publicly, um, which I guess I'm doing right now. Yeah. Uh, James, I forgot it's not just you and me talking. Uh, <laughs> uh, then, then there's people that that's going to inform their life experience. So there's a reason I try to, to lean forward into being honest and being open about things. But there, I don't know. I don't know what this looks like over time. I know right now I'm going through trauma therapy and I can't sleep a full night's sleep because I have really severe nightmares every night. Mm. And I know in my last trauma therapy session, uh, I fainted uh, because I had such a severe body reaction to what we were discussing very calmly. Mm. Um You know, I think it's interesting when we talk about mental health. There's a alphabet soup, OCD, PTSD, ASD, SAD, uh, yeah. SPD. You know, you could go on with these little three-letter and four-letter um, conditions all day. Um, and they're just – they're labels. They're medical labels, certainly, that are useful in, in assessing treatment options. But the intersection of all these different issues – what, what is the intersection of sensory processing disorder, autism spectrum disorder, and PTSD? I call it science, Mike. It's just me. Yeah. I'm not those conditions. Those are labels the medical community uses to try to help me improve my quality of life. Ideally, where we run off the rails is when we allow those terms to be used 
to marginalize people or minimize their life experiences. Like, oh, well, Mike, he's just a guy with autism, right? So when we get to that point, that's when the labels become harmful things. But, But what they're meant to do is simply help us find the support we need to live better lives. And that's where the church really needs to step up. The church so often has this kind of antagonistic approach to mental health treatments and mental health counseling and mental health awareness. But these, it's, there's nothing wrong with me that I have PTSD. My brain is, I've had some bad experiences that my brain has tried to help me through. We call that PTSD. Uh, I have a different, um, neurological architecture from most people. We call that autism spectrum disorder and it has some challenges. Sure. But it also offers me some gifts as well. Yeah. Just like everyone else's totally unique brain architecture does for them. Yeah, oh, yeah that's a really amazing way to look at it. I I love that that you know the intersection of all of these different labels is you. And I think for me, and I think for anyone listening who's who's had you know who has one or more of those conditions or suspects that they might do. I think that's really encouraging. I think that's quite affirming. Because, you know, we shouldn't feel stigmatised by these labels. Um, And you're right about the church, and the church has a lot of work to do. One of the things that I do in the work that I do is um, try and advocate for, you know, mental health awareness and the church dealing with mental illness better and you know, breaking down stigma and that kind of thing. And, you know, that's why why I like to talk about these issues on my podcast, because it's really important to raise awareness and to break down that stigma and provide solidarity for people. So um, thank you for sharing that. It really is um, a courageous thing to do, and I think it's a really um, encouraging and affirming thing to do for, for others as well. So... Um, Thank you. Um, Thank you, James. Um, I mean, how has the diagnosis impacted your your faith, your spirituality, at all? Um, no, I don't think it has. Um, but I had a pretty flexible, um, pretty flexible faith to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I, I think you know if you'd have rolled back the clock and some of my prior ways of understanding the world, then um, yeah, I think it would have been much more difficult to get through. But no, I did, it did not have huge faith implications for me. That's really good. That's really good. The same with me. Same with me as well. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing about that. I think um, that's really, really great. Really courageous. So thank you. Look, I think we're going to get on to some questions from the liturgist people now um some of these are going to be fun just kind of you know jokey around questions um a bit light-hearted some of them are a bit deeper and more serious so um yeah we've got like 20 minutes to get through some of these so um um we'll start off with a fun one um what do you see as the cultural difference between a geek and a nerd 
gosh, boy, that uh, they're really starting strong <laughs> and kind of at the heart of um, kind of how I identify. Yeah. Um, gosh, let's see. Well, nerds, I would usually think of um, somebody who nerds out on something. So nerds are going to have like a mental focus, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a I'm a brain science nerd, right? And yeah. it it means I like to acquire knowledge and information about neuroscience and memorize it, and do a good job communicating it. So I'm nerdy in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, geeks, I think we think more about. Um, comic book geeks, uh, sci-fi, yeah, sci-fi people can be nerds or geeks, uh, <laughs> but geeks are gonna are gonna be enthusiastic about some piece of culture, and then they're gonna collect things about it, right? So, uh, if you're a technology geek, you might have. If you're an Apple geek, you might have a collection from every generation of Mac going back to the original one. If you're an Apple nerd, then you're going to be more likely to be into um, programming or kernel architecture. Um, although you could, I suppose you could geek out about, it's subtle, but I don't think it's that subtle. Geeks, mm. Geeks are obsessed with something and then they collect things about it and they put their identity in it. Nerds are uh, obsessed with a specifically intellectual avenue of awareness or exploration. Ah. Did I just overthink it? I might have no, overthought I think it. That's, I think that's a good definition, actually. Yeah, because I've struggled with that myself. Like, am I a geek or a nerd? Because you know, I'm into like comic book movies, sci-fi, TV, and all those kind of things, and I collect like DVDs and you know box sets and all that kind of stuff, and binge out on those. Um, so I'm a bit of a geek. I'm going to Comic Con. I'm a I'm year. a I'm a quantum <laughs> physics nerd. I'm a I'm a neuroscience nerd. I'm a VR geek. Ah, that's, yeah, that's go. how I would see that. So, okay. Oh, here's a great one. A woman asked this question. A woman from the London event, actually. Um, what would you change about your life if you were a woman? Gosh, what would I change about my life if I was a woman? And I wouldn't change anything. Society would change a lot. Uh, uh, I'd have to fight harder to be heard. I wouldn't be taken as seriously in a lot of venues. People wouldn't be as deferential to me when I started to speak. So I don't know that I would change anything. I would have to change things out of necessity because of how culture related to me differently. But but a specific goal in my life is to recreate society in such a way Mm. that I would not have to be any different at all if I were a woman. Yeah, that's. I think I would agree with you 100% there. Absolutely. Um, do you know about the Litigious Community Singles Facebook group? 
I have heard of it, and I have met emissaries of that community uh, at events, events all across the world. So, awesome! Um, I've been literally all across the world. <laughs> it's awesome. There's some crazy stuff going on in that group, which I can't. Speak I have of no publicly. idea what happens. No one's ever told me what it's like. We're I having, barely knows it exists. We're having video I dating. It's it's, lack it's happening. Serious qualification to be involved, as I am not single. No, obviously not. Um, yeah, I'm part of that group because uh, I am single. So, um, and it's a fun group. So, uh, they just wanted to know if you knew. They wanted to know if you knew. They weren't sure. Absolutely. I don't think. <laughs> um. Okay. I don't know if they're the ones making out at all the litter just gathering after parties <laughs> or not, but. Oh, there's some interesting things going on in the group. That's for sure. Some fun things and appropriate things, but interesting things. Um, it's great. So, okay, next question. Okay, here we go. Given your own recognition that he uses having a job at the event to deal with social chaos, how does Mike? How do you perceive the difference between introversion and extroversion, and how are they different from how we commonly define them? Okay, I get the second part of the question. Could you give me the first part of the question again? Okay, um, it was given your recognition that you use your having a job at the event to deal with social chaos. Uh huh. Yes. How do you perceive the difference between introversion and ex- extroversion? Yeah, so uh, I look very extroverted at most of the events we do, but it's because I view part of my job as taking on a role or a persona of creating space for everybody else in the event. Mm. It's easier than it sounds. It's not hard for me to relate to a very large group of people, say an audience, in a way that um, is easier than for me to deal like with one person one-on-one or especially a group of eight or 12 people, which is kind of my nightmare. Mm. Um, so I've always thought I was an extrovert, but I think I was lonely. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any friends as a kid. And so when I started to learn how to get people to pay attention to me and like me, that filled kind of a, mm. a wound in my psychological makeup, this validation, this attention. Uh, And then I became a public figure, and most places I go, a lot of people want to see me. In fact, they'll actually buy tickets to see me, which is a real head trip. If you've never had people buy tickets to see you, Mm. it is very – it's a strange feeling. I bet it is, Um, And so, you know, especially when events sell out, which they often do for me these days, um, it's like, okay, so we got a room and we sold tickets. And, like, some people want to come but can't. That's a really weird feeling. So, and then because I'm me, this work, I don't care about uh, fame at all. I care about making a difference in people's lives. So I stay around and do, like, meet and greets. So I'll stay after an event sometimes for, like, three to five hours talking to every person who wants to talk to me. And after that, I'm exhausted. And so I come home, and then I don't talk to my friends and family because <laughs> I, like, spent all my energy. So I realized I'm not actually um, a full-on extrovert. Mm. Uh, I don't think I'm an introvert either. So let's kind of take from my experience into the second part of the question, which is a classification of introversion and extroversion. What we understand now through brain science is introversion and extroversion are a matter of the brain's sensitivity to stimulus. 
Extrovert brains are not very responsive to stimulus, and so they need a lot of stimulus and aware. Introvert brains are very sensitive to stimulus, and so they get overwhelmed to a place that makes them tired. So with the same amount of stimulus, an extrovert is appropriately stimulated and an introvert is overly stimulated. See what I mean? Yeah. So it turns out there's a real brain mechanism at play underneath that. There are introverts and there are extroverts. Most people, if we look at that as a spectrum, are somewhere in the middle, in a middle third maybe or more, we call ambiverts. And ambiverts, we believe, are most people. So I'm an ambivert in that if I have enough rest and enough energy as a result of that rest, I can handle more stimulation. But on this side of a brain injury, I am more introverted than I used to be, not because my personality changed, although it did. That change is the result of my brain's sensitivity to stimulus. And people, whether they're at a dinner party or crowded around you on a subway, create a lot of stimulus for the human brain. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I always learn something when I talk to you, Mike. <laughs> um, that, yeah, I learn something about myself pretty much every time I talk to you. Um, it's really great. Um, so, okay, next question. This is a deep one. Um, do your faith and your scientific kind of rational thinking always complement each other and what do you do when they come into conflict how do you respond well they come into conflict all the time but i view that as complementary um my faith and my scientific worldview well they serve different functions in my life um when i'm interrogating the world about why the world is the world that's what science is for and it's good at it. It's better at it than anything else we're aware of. Um, if we want to know why the stock market moved X number of points in an amount of time, then some science baseline of inquiry is the best way to do that. If we want to know how to increase the efficiency of a radio transmitter, science, there we go once again. If we want to know what happens in our brains when we fall in love, science has got that on lock. But science's shortcoming often is describing and articulating the subjective parts of the human experience. That's what the humanities are so good at, right? Mm. Uh, The Mona Lisa is not a scientific work, but it is still deeply informative. And so I simply place my faith in the same category as the humanities in helping me explore what it means to be human, often what to do with all these findings science has given me. So science might tell me how to split an atom, but it won't tell me whether I should use that to level a city or to power one. And that's where our faith begins to offer us really valuable insights, uh, along with other, you know, ethical models and philosophies. Um, But they, you know, they start to inform what we do with all the knowledge that science is offering us. But if my faith told me that the universe is 6,000 years old, 
and my science told me that it's uh, almost 14 billion, I'm going to go with science 10 out of 10 times. Yeah, well, I'd agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, this is a really fun question. And I the weird thing is, I don't know who these two people are, but I presume you do. Um, who would win in a Jello cage fight? Neil deGrasse Tyson or Machu Kaku? Is that how you pronounce it? Michio yeah, Kaku. Michio Kaku. Uh, the, so those guys are. Uh, Neil is an astrophysicist, an astronomer, and uh, the oh, he's yes. in charge of the Hayden Planetarium in New York. Yes. No, and no, then Michio yeah. Kaku is uh, a, a, a renowned physicist as well who writes a lot of popular works on physics. Um, so who would win in a Jello cage match? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson for sure. He's a he's a lot bigger. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I don't know what they look like, so I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be able to guess that. I've never seen a Jello cage fight. That would be interesting. <laughs> um, okay, this has been really great. Thank you for asking answering all these questions. Um, there are lots more. Um, so. Uh, Thank you for all those who asked these questions. You know who you are. Uh, I didn't want to uh, give people's names out just in case um, they didn't want their names given out. So, uh, yeah. Um, the last question is kind of what I want to end with because it's such a great question. And um, and before I ask it, I want to just thank you for coming on today again. It's always good to have you on here um, and for talking about um, um, yeah, the mental illness, autistic spectrum, um, stuff earlier on which was so great so um yeah um so thank you for for all of that and for coming on um, yeah it's my my pleasure james you know that yeah i know yeah you're very good at encouraging me <laughs> uh, my anxiety always kick my anxiety and insecurities always kick in when people give me compliments so, uh, so i experienced something very similar so i understand yeah and actually the last question is kind of um, appropriate having just said that um, how do you truly love yourself I'm learning to say nice things about myself to myself hmm. I'm learning to accept the love and support of others when that doesn't come naturally to me I'm learning to love what I see in the mirror from the hairy shoulders to the not very hairy crown of my head. I'm learning to be patient with myself. I'm learning that some things that about me that I think are weak are actually strengths, but I'm learning that it's okay if I'm weak sometimes. Um, I'm learning I'm not an island, that the decisions I think I'm making myself are informed by social systems and massive societal structures that dramatically influence how my brain operates. So I'm learning to do the best with the cards that I'm dealt, but also aware that most of my hand of cards, that is is distributed among my friends, family, and society at large. And so I'm learning 
that loving myself looks like loving everyone else too. Wow, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Learning to loving ourselves looks like loving everyone else too. Hmm. Wow. Thank you, Mike, for uh, for that and for coming on today. And uh, we'll definitely have you back again sometime soon. You're always welcome on this show. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you, James. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks. And uh, take care, everyone. Thanks for listening.